Good evening, and I'm, I'm Scott Warner, president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago, and I welcome you to our monthly Zoomcast. Uh, this past fall, I had the pure pleasure of attending the International Association of Culinary Professionals annual conference that was held in Birmingham, Alabama, and among the most moving talks I attended was one by Dr. Safira Bailey Shuttlesworth, who spoke poignantly and personally about black women in the kitchen and what they have contributed to America's table. And the frosting on the cake came when she belted out a spiritual that her grandmother often sang in the kitchen as she cooked for her family. And uh, Dr. Shuttlesworth also was uh, sharing the podium with, uh, with uh, several distinguished speakers. Among them was uh, former Alabama Senator Doug Jones who now is uh, in charge of bringing the Supreme Court nominee, whoever it is, to, to meet the legislators uh, during the nomination process. And anyway, when she finished her talk, Dr. Shuttlesworth got a standing ovation, and I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. And she, uh, aside from the standing ovation, she also had me standing in front of her, tra trapping her before she left the stage, asking her if she would share her tale uh, and some family recipes and a, throw in a song or two just for the culinary historians of Chicago. And she said yes in a nanosecond. And before I bring her to the virtual podium, here's a few highlights from her, uh, from her background. And Safira, I, I'll, I'll read some of your background if you wanna add more when, uh, when you start speaking, go ahead. But uh, Dr. Shuttlesworth or Safira rhymes with Delilah uh, brings 30 years plus experience as an educator, administrator, trainer, and motivational speaker to our program. She's also an outstanding cook and an avid foodie. Uh, Safira was born in rural Tennessee, where she and two of her siblings integrated the Jackson-Madison County school system in the summer of 1966 and had a lot of, shall we say, rich experiences during that time. Uh, and she went through high school and everything, and then she spent less than three years completing her undergraduate degree in education in Tennessee. Then she took a bold leap and moved to Ohio to teach, but she landed in the middle of a hiring freeze for teachers, and she relied on her love of cooking and entrepreneurial spirit and landed a job in food service management. But finally, in 1983, she accepted a teaching position with Cincinnati Public Schools, later got a master's degree in educational administration, received an honorary doctoral degree in business Christian management from the Global Evangelical Christian College and Seminary in Montgomery, Alabama. And in Cincinnati, things really blossomed when Safira met the iconic Reverend Fred L. Shuttlesworth, who was nationally recognized for his leadership during the civil rights movement. And after a 20-year friendship, uh, Safira um, married this civil rights icon. Uh, and she worked closely with her husband on local and national issues aimed at uplifting poor, disenfranchised people, challenging injustice, and addressing quality in education. Her husband passed away in this respite. Safira returned to education as a charter school director in Lansing, Michigan this time, and culminated her career in 2017 
as regional support director for a Cincinnati, Ohio charter school. You really moved around, but <laughs> since retirement, Sapphira, Sapphira's in Mississippi right now. Uh, that's where she's living right now. And she continues to travel, enlightening audiences throughout the country. Most recently, she has embarked on her latest venture training, listen to this, with the Brain Stimulated Wellness Organization to become a licensed interventionist able to provide proven techniques that reduce stress and trauma to clients of all ages, especially problems that people are having with the, because of the worldwide pandemic. Uh, she anticipates completing her training and uh, degree in 2023. And at home, she enjoys cooking, writing, home improvement projects, and grandmothering her precious 12-year-old grandson, who I'm Steve, the wonderful food she's making. And Absolutely. And Sapphira has some recipes for us uh, that are going are are to be posted on our website, but some wonderful family recipes. So uh, with that, would you come on down and serve us up your wonderful talk? All right. Good evening, everybody. I And I cannot add one more thing. I think Scott read everything that was on my uh, bio. And so... Oh, excuse me. Actually, I read the... That was my edited version. <laughs> that was I, your edited your, version. Your bio would have taken the whole program. Pardon me? Did I write more than that? <laughs> yes. Yes. No, that was edited. You've done a lot of things, Miss. So I'll get I guess off. I have been busy, huh? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, it is a pleasure to be with you all this evening, and uh, I'm going to tell you that this is my first time actually delivering um, on Zoom. Now, I've been on Zoom. I do things on Zoom, but it's usually uh, a group of people, and normally when I speak uh, during Black History Month or any other month, I'm at a podium, and I'm able to move around, and so for me to sit here and do this, you know, y'all just work with me. And so, but I am having the time of my life. I, I just um, remarried actually in October and moved to, from Tennessee, which is my home town, uh, Jackson, Tennessee to Vicksburg, Mississippi. So I um, am just getting, turning a house into a home and getting used to being uh married again and we're enjoying ourselves and the smile on my face probably lets you know that that's going pretty well. So I met Scott, as he mentioned, uh, at the um, International uh, Association for Culinary Professionals back in October in Birmingham. And um, he was right. He was waiting for me at the stage uh, when we uh, finished our segment uh, early uh, that morning and invited me to uh, participate and uh, meet you all and, and participate here in February. And so uh, I was talking about my mama's kitchen. Uh, I was on a, a, a group there on the podium and they were talking about what happens in the kitchen in African the African-American scene. And so I thought about a lot of the things that happened and that brought me to uh, this conversation tonight with you all. Um, I will take questions at the end. And so uh, jot any questions down that you have for me, I'll be happy to address those. So I recently read that the farmhouse table is the new boardroom. Well, I submit to you that in my community, it always has been. 
Many an issue has been mulled over and chewed on, dissected, and solved from our humble kitchen tables. Not only have we met up with friends and family and neighbors at the dinner table, but we even commune with our maker there. Not only was it the place where we fed ourselves and our loved ones, but it doubled as the boardroom where family decisions were made, the bank where earnings were managed, the butcher shop where meat was prepared, a production place for food that was canned or preserved for future consumption. The kitchen was even a beauty salon where many a young lady cried out as one of the straightening combs touched our ear as we were getting all prettied up for Sunday church. Our kitchens have always been the most important room in the house. Some years ago, I started a book and its title was Pot Liquor and Collard Greens. It was about the food that sustained generations of my people as they struggled to find their place here in the, what was supposed to be the promised land. It was an attempt to collect some of the old recipes, things like butter rolls, egg custard, cobblers, and one of the recipes that I shared with you all um, for this session was my grandmother's blackberry cobbler recipe, which is my favorite. How about smothered rabbit or smothered quail or just about any meat? And uh, Scott was talking about my 12-year-old grandson who uh, lo loves my food. Uh, a couple of years ago, I introduced him to gravy. Everybody needs to know about gravy. And so I was there uh, in uh, my daughter's kitchen and I made pork chops and I made gravy to cover them over, smothered them. And so I called him to the kitchen. I said, here, I got something I want you to try. And so I gave him a spoon of gravy, a taste of gravy. And he goes, hmm, Graham, that is so good. He says, how do you know so much about food? Well, that was an endorsement for me. I absolutely love that question. I don't think I'm ever gonna forget it. My grandmother made a, what you call a double crusted apple pie. And what she would do is boil, take these apples and cut them off the core, peel it, you know, peel them and cut them off the core and boil them down to their last degree and they'd be turned dark in color. And then she'd make a crust for the bottom of the pan and, and season this, this uh, apple deliciousness up just perfectly and pour that in the pan and smooth it out and then put a second crust on top of that and poke little holes in it for both beauty and to let some of the steam out. And I hear something ringing. Goodness, excuse me just a moment. <laughs> I set an alarm and it worked. How about that? Take this away from me. So anyhow, back to my grandmother's pie. She made the best pie. And another thing that happened was uh, with sweet potatoes. I think my grandmother had about 100 recipes for sweet potatoes. She could boil them, she could bake them, sweet potato pie, sweet potato casserole with marshmallows or with pecans or with honey so many different things that she could do with sweet potatoes. 
but one of my favorite things that she cooked was boiled cabbage sprouts. Now, cabbage in itself is a wonderful, wonderful vegetable, I think. And my grandmother would boil it down with ham hocks and they put in what they call new potatoes, which is uh, the red potato. And you dig them just when they're young so that they're the size no bigger than like a small egg. And they actually scrape some of the red skin from the potatoes. I don't know why, but they did that. And then they put lay them on top of the cabbage steaming in the pot and just cook it down low. And oh, it was so wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And then now cabbage sprouts come after you cut the head of cabbage and you leave the plant there, cover it over with a cabbage leaf and a, a new plant starts to grow. And so when those get to be, oh, about the size of uh, your hand or a little less, you cut like a dish pan of those is what we do and take them in and cook those also the same way you cook the cabbage and put the red potatoes on it. And I tell you, I could make a meal of nothing but cabbage sprouts and red potatoes and I can still do that. And sometimes I do. Another thing that my grandmother made very so very well was chicken and dressing. She did chicken and dumplings, but she also did chicken and dressing. So after meeting up with uh, my new friends at the Association of Culinary Professionals in October, I was inspired to go back and dig out that book. I think I need to finish my book. So I'm going to make a commitment to get to work on that this year along with all the other wonderful things I have to do. Now, my maternal grandmother was one of those magical cooks. She was hands down the best cook in our family and she held that position not only in our family, but she was known to be one of the best uh, cooks in our community. She made cooking look effortless. I used to spend a lot of time standing behind the wood-burning stove in her kitchen, just watching her prepare wonderful meals. And I wanted so much to be able to replicate that. So my, my grandmother became a widow early, on, early in life. She was in her late 40s when Papa died and she was left to raise four teenagers on her own. Papa left her pretty well off though, in one way. He left a 30 acre farm where she and the children worked season in and season out making a living. Known for being a good provider and an upstanding member of the community, Papa's legacy was feeding people. When families ran short of food during the hard times, they'd go see brother Andrew because they knew that he would see them through the next week or so by giving them food. On that little farm, they grew as many as 25 different varieties of fruits and vegetables. We had orchards and in those orchards were several kinds of apple trees. There, were, there was peach trees, plum trees, pear trees, um, grapes, all kinds of wonderful things, blackberries. And uh, we also had the garden and in the garden, so very many things from corn to potatoes and sweet potatoes and um, greens, three different kinds usually, collard greens, mustard greens and turnip greens and tomatoes and 
potatoes and and then we had what we call truck patches and those truck patches were meant to feed not just your family but to sell to the public as well as to give to folks in need and some of the things that we grew in the truck truck patches were squashes and sweet potatoes and red potatoes and peanuts and beans and greens and peas and corn. A truck patch usually uh, uh, took up about anywhere from half an acre of ground to a, an acre of ground. And so you can see how that it might feed a lot of people. They grew almost everything they needed to sustain themselves on this little farm. And they always had enough to share with others. Now, wonderful food wasn't the only thing that came out of our kitchens. Wonderful music was often a close companion as we prepared our meals. And I'm saying we because I feel the connection to my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents, uh, the struggle that they uh, came through to get to where we are. And though we weren't rich by any means, we weren't poor either. And so now back to the music, depending on the mood, it would be something light and fun, like shoe fly, don't bother me. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Cause I belong to somebody. So there were times when uh, there even was, uh, we'd write our own songs. And uh, the, the, most, the one that I remember most from my childhood was a song that had one word for the lyrics. And what would happen is my grandmother would often have one of us in her arms while she worked. And one of the things that she did was churn milk. And so I had put together a little guy right here that kind of simulates a churn. The churn would be um, made of uh, some kind of um, uh, stone. Uh, no, that's not the word. Um, I'll have to come back to it. But anyhow, um, a big jar on the floor, basically, and uh, made of clay. Thank you. There it is. And so um, it would have a lid on it and through that lid would be a handle and there was a paddle in there. And if you can see what's happening here, imagine a container sitting at your feet that would uh, hold anywhere from three to five gallons of milk. So you've got cows and they would milk the cows each, every day and churn the milk. You turn the milk to separate the butter from the milk. So she'd have to churn and then you'd have a, a, a baby, sometimes whining. And so she'd hold the baby in one arm and she'd churn with the other. And so she just made up this little song which put all of us to sleep. And that was churn, 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 churn. Turn, 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 turn. I think it's the only song I know that only has one word. But it became a rite of passage for all of the babies that came through my grandmother, my mother, and me. The mood of the music sometimes became increasingly serious 
as the cares of the world would fall squarely on our shoulders. We spent quality times with ourselves and the Lord trying to make sense of the world around us. Sometimes a reminder was all we needed. And it might sound like this. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And as the weight of the world bore down even more, we were reminded that the Lord was our burden bearer and our heavy load sharer. And through prayer and through song, we just call him out. Come by here, oh Lord, kumbaya. Come by here, oh Lord, kumbaya. Come by here, oh Lord, kumbaya. Oh Lord. And then came those times when we couldn't even see our way. We'd beseech the only power we knew that we could count on. I can just imagine my grandmother's angst after losing Papa. I envision her in her kitchen kneading the latest batch of yeast bread tears flowing down her cheeks. And what you might hear is something like, precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. See, I, I'm tired, I, I'm weak, and I, I'm worn through the storm and through the light. Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. One thing that black women over time have excelled at is making something out of nothing, especially in the kitchen. It's a skill that was passed down through the generations. My late husband, 
Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, used to say that he could go into our kitchen and come out sure that there was nothing to eat, certain that it was time to go to the grocery store. And 20 minutes later, I could go into that same kitchen and have a meat and three on the stove, dessert in the oven, and dinner on the table in under an hour. That's because I can almost always see a meal where others might not. And I can take scraps and leftovers and make a new and wonderful taste treat. It is a skill that I believe has its roots in what we call slave food. Slave food consisted of the leftover and discarded rations that slave owners made available to their chattel. From the pig, there were such parts as the liver and the spleen, which we call the light. The intestines, which we call the chitlins. The maw, which, which was actually the stomach. The head, the neck bones, the pig feet, and the tails. From the cow came the tripe, the liver, the tail, which are now called oxtails and cost more than, my goodness, they're so expensive. The tongue, the neck bones again, and the backbones. Slaves were also allowed to scrap the seconds, oftentimes inferior, inferior quality and or leftover fruits and vegetables. They also had lard that was uh, stewed out, they call it, from uh, the fatty parts of uh, the pig, and they oftentimes grew sorghum molasses. Not only were families sustained from these foods, but some of them were used to outwit would-be predators. For instance, black-eyed peas were a code used by the abolitionists to signal, quote, be careful, there are too many eyes watching. What these do is drop the peas along the trail to warn people. They also symbolized good luck on your journey. Recently, I read some fascinating information about okra. Enslaved women sometimes use okra to achieve abortions by lubricating the uterine passage with the okra's slimy pods. Can you imagine? Reportedly, parts of the cottonwood tree were consumed by birthing age women also for that same purpose. Now, we know that slave women had to endure the advances of their masters and other men. And so this is one of the things that they were able to do to thwart off the unwanted pregnancy and or birth of such children. So we started out young learning how to cook that is. Like so many other women, I, I was introduced to the kitchen at a young age, at the age of six, as a matter of fact. At that time, my mother was pregnant with twins and she was eventually placed on bed rest and uh, by that time, I remember I told you I used to stand behind my, my grandmother's cook stove. So I had accumulated a wealth of knowledge 
primarily from watching my grandmother cook. I loved her food and I wanted to cook just like her. So one morning as uh, my daddy tried to make biscuits, mm -mm, he could not do it. I convinced my mother that I could do it. So to everyone's surprise, guess who made biscuits? Thus began my culinary journey. By age 12, I was the secondary cook in our house and often made the entire meals to feed 11 people. In our, in the 20th century, we women have used our skill with food and we've become profitable. There's some ways that we have become profitable from restaurants to food trucks to cookbooks and cooking shows and blogs, the African-American imprint on what America eats is undeniable. We've come a long way, baby, from grandmama's kitchen. I am going to close with a um, poem from John Paul Moore titled Drinking From My Saucer. This poem reminds me of my grandmother who drank Maxwell House coffee and every once in a while gave me a sip. Every morning she would brew those coarse grounds in her percolator and pour up a fresh cup. I'd watch her as she poured some in her saucer though, sipping as if all her worries were being carried away with each gentle slurp. Although my grandmother's life was anything but easy, she fared well and found joy and contentment despite the odds. Memories of her faith and her fortitude and her skills helped to lay the foundation for me to live an extraordinary life. She couldn't give up and neither can I. And because of this, my cup overflows. I've never made a fortune and it's probably too late now, but I don't worry about that much. I'm happy anyhow. And as I go along life's way, I'm reaping better than I sowed. I'm drinking from my saucer cause my cup has overflowed. Haven't got a lot of riches and sometimes the going's tough, but I've got loving ones around me and that makes me rich enough. I thank God for his blessings and the mercies he's bestowed. I'm drinking from my saucer cause my cup has overflowed. I remember times when things were wrong. My faith wore somewhat thin, but all at once the dark clouds broke and the sun peeped through again. So Lord, help me not to gripe about the tough rows I've had toe. I'm drinking from my saucer cause my cup has overflowed. If God gives me strength and courage when the way grows steep and rough, I'll not ask for other blessings. I'm already blessed enough. And may I never be too busy to help others bear their loads. Then I'll keep drinking from my saucer cause my cup has overflowed. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, 
uh, I'm getting hungry and I'm poignantly overtaken right now by, by your words. Uh, you, you have some um, recipes that you've included. Can you tell, tell us about the recipes and what they mean to you? And also, I want to point out to everyone, I asked Safira if she could provide some recipes. And then I, later I thought, I wonder if she has recipes because she probably knows how to cook so well and that she doesn't use recipes. And I was right, she doesn't use recipes. So she actually put these recipes together just for us some, from some of her family favorites. And again, what are they? And uh, what, what do they mean to you, these, these things that you're sharing with us? Well, first of all, it was difficult to decide which ones to share with you. And um, so I thought about some unusual ones. I thought about some versatile ones. And then I came up with my favorite one. So uh, the unusual one, I think, is uh, the squash and onions. Um, I don't know. I don't think I've ever in life had the two together, except uh, from what my grandmother and my mother uh, prepared for us. And yet it's such a wonderful, sweet, slightly sweet and yet savory dish. And uh, the squash and onions marry well. They uh, they go with a lot of things. I mean, you can literally put it on the plate with just about any kind of meat and, you know, any uh, additional vegetables you'd like. Um, and so it's one of those very versatile things. Um, and the uh, hot water cornbread, uh, hot water cornbread is one of those things. I I can't eat greens without hot water cornbread. <laughs> My grandmother indoctrinated me well. And uh, there are just times I taught my daughter how to make it and, you know, she's going to be needing to teach her son how to make it. I mean, it's just one of those things that I can't imagine us lose, losing sight of. But again, it's one of those versatile things that, that goes wonderfully well with a pot of beans or peas or um, uh, even green beans and certainly the green vegetables. Now, I, let me talk a little bit about pot liquor because maybe some people don't know what pot liquor is and, 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 and what it meant to uh, families uh, in need, uh, poor families. Um, pot liquor is that juice that's in the pot once you boiled your vegetables down. Doesn't matter what kind of vegetables they are, um, but uh, it's the juice that's left there. And in cases of families that were large, it was difficult to feed people. And so what you could do is cook extra bread, cornbread usually, and crumble the cornbread into the juice that's in the pot. And that now extended the meal. It helped to quote, fill people up. And it was important to do that because when you're working, you know, from sun up to sundown in the field, be it uh, chopping cotton or picking cotton. And, you know, it takes a lot of energy and you're sweating out all of your, you know, uh, your strength in those cotton fields and, 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 and uh, other kinds of fields. It, you needed to eat hearty. And pot liquor helped us to do that, to sustain our families, to keep our bodies strong, to be able to uh, produce what was expected and needed of us. Now, I'm saying us. I'm 64 years old. I'm pretty well educated. 
And yet I can tell you that I picked cotton as a child. I remember being in the cotton field when I was as young as four. And I remember that uh, my mom had just married my stepdad and he uh, had come to Jackson, Tennessee on a train from Chicago. Um, and he was having difficulty finding a job, a steady job. He had a job and he got laid off. And so we had to eat, we had to decide what to do. Uh, so my mother said to my dad, well, it's, you know, cotton picking time, we can pick cotton. And so my mother and father took me with them to the cotton field. Together, their goal was to pick 500 pounds of cotton a day, and they did it every day. My job was to pick at least 35 pounds of cotton so that they could take the money from that cotton and buy our lunch. So we would weigh the cotton in at lunchtime and they would go to the gin, take, take a, a bale of cotton to the gin. And uh, there, the gin also was attached to a small store, country store. And there we would uh, get maybe um, a, a half pound of bologna and a half pound of cheese and a sleeve of crackers and uh, a soda pop and um, uh, a package of cinnamon rolls. I don't know if you remember how cinnamon rolls back in the day would come, I think it was three, six, nine, twelve, maybe in a package. And so the three of us together could share that food and sustain ourselves and get ready to get back to the, the fields, you know, by like two o'clock so that we could work the afternoon also. So I have an, I had an older sister. Uh, she's in heaven now. Uh, she was three and a half years older. And so she stayed home to take care of the younger children. So I was the one who was in the field with my parents to pick cotton to sustain us. So pot liquor, that's why I, I wanted to write about pot liquor because it was so very important. Um, in time, in uh, the case of families who had a lot of children, 9, 10, 11, 12 children, it wasn't uncommon for the mother to go out to the field and maybe be able to what we call scrap, um, maybe a gallon bucket full of greens. And you take those in and you, if you eat greens, you know that a gallon bucket is gonna cook away and you're gonna have very little of you know sustenance there. And so um, what they would do is cook and, and cook the bread and then the children would get just a little bit of greens on their plate and a rather large slice of bread and some pot liquor so that they could eat and fill themselves up. So that is why pot liquor was so important in, uh, in, in, in our lives and in our world. The third recipe that I shared with you is my grandmother's blackberry cobbler. And I want you to know that I actually went to the kitchen and made it for dinner uh, a few nights ago. <laughs> my husband was thrilled, by the way. He wants to thank you for that. <laughs> because Scott is absolutely right. I started cooking so early in life and I never saw my grandmother measure anything. And I mean, you know, that's kind of how we do it in our community. It's not necessary to measure, unless of course it's a new recipe, you know, something from, I cook from other cuisines also. And so there are times when if I'm cooking some African food or, or uh, you know, some other uh, Chinese or something like that, yeah, I might 
you know, but I pretty much can eyeball what a teaspoon of anything looks like and um, I don't need a spoon. <laughs> Um, there was a question about, well, squash and onions. It's yes. a thing, uh, Annette Lang used to live in Georgia. So she said that's a thing in Georgia. She's made it. And it's Yay. yellow squash, right? Yes, yellow squash and onions. Kind of equal parts. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> Somebody was, I'm not quite sure, but I'll, I'll ask anyway because I'm not sure. Was that Ms. Brooks or Toni Morrison? Holy smokes. I don't know if that was, I'm sorry, I don't know. Rod, maybe you could explain yourself. <laughs> but anyway, this other person said their mother, their grandmother uh, made squash. It started it the same way, but they added tomatoes, fresh basil, and cheese. Wow. I've never heard of that. And somebody inquired, do you have a website or bibliography of your writings? I am in the process of putting something together as we speak. So give me a few weeks and I'm going to pull it all together, including this gym right here. <laughs> okay. And if you, if you, if you send us the link or send us the list, we could just attach it so people can later go check it on their website. It's okay. up to you. Or, okay. we'll, or just point where to find it and then we'll, we'll all just cheerfully run over. Well, and for, for the time being, uh, you can certainly Google me. There's stuff out there, you know, so you're welcome Google to do will that. find it, right? Yes, Google me. You'll find it. Okay, I, Coco Taylor, oh, I think I... she's talking to you about your singing. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I see, did your family make fried chicken? Oh, my goodness. Ah. My grandmother made the best fried chicken. I'm telling you, Colonel Sanders had nothing on her. You hear me? And um, I, yes, I make fried chicken just anytime I feel like it. But yes, we make fried chicken quite often. And here's the thing. Here's one thing you might that might surprise you. We made fried chicken for, for breakfast sometime and smothered it in gravy and made biscuits and with sorghum molasses. And we thought we were in seventh heaven. So there, we had chicken for breakfast. <laughs> Did you do chicken and waffles in your home? We didn't do waffles. Waffles is one of those things that probably came from north of the Mason-Dixon line or something. Um, normally, I don't think we had like waffle makers. We did more pancakes, you know, than, than waffles. And of course, what they call hot cakes, which I'm not sure what the difference was. But no, we did not do, uh, I didn't grow up doing chicken and waffles, but I do it now oftentimes. I have, you know, my own waffle maker and uh, my own recipe, if you will. And uh, especially when I go to visit my daughter and my grandson, he loves waffles and pancakes and such, and he loves chicken. So grandma spoils him a little bit. That's what grandma's supposed to do. Absolutely. Uh, I and somebody. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jacqueline is a is, is loves leftovers. She goes outside of chicken for breakfast. When there was anything left at your table, how did you reheat it and transform it into something new? Ah, let me think about that now. Let me think of a, an example of something. Um, uh, well, uh, reheating it, of course, this was before even the microwave, you know, uh, reheating things oftentimes, um, let's say we had 
uh, some chicken left, I would cover that over um, and put it in the oven, turn on a, a, low, a slow oven um, and turn that on and stick it in there and, and bring it back to life that way. Um, it also, depending on what it was, you could put it in a skillet and add a little water to you know, cause it to steam. I can't run a kitchen without a cast iron skillet. And I probably have half a dozen of them in my current kitchen. And I found that they have come in handy in so many different ways. But let's say for instance, I um, we had a meat and three for dinner and I made roast beef, um, corn, um, green beans, uh, sliced tomatoes and cornbread. So that was Sunday dinner. I could take the leftover green beans and corn and tomatoes, throw them in a pot and some of the beef and the beef liquor, if you will, the beef gravy, throw that in a pot, add to it some onions, some carrots, some English peas or any kind of peas or any kind of beans. And now we've got a wonderful pot of vegetable soup. So that's, that's some of the ways that we use leftovers. And here's the thing, how about um, potatoes? In, in the South, we cook something called stewed potatoes. And basically you just take a white potato, an Irish potato and, and um, peel it, cut it into chunks, throw it over in a pot, put some water in there, let it boil down until the potatoes are soft. Then we add some butter and black pepper. Um, oftentimes we add onions also, just chip up a little bit of onions to give a little onion flavor in there. And that becomes a vegetable on our plate, you know, alongside um, meat and other vegetables. So now I have some leftover stewed potatoes. So I get up the next morning, I take those stewed potatoes and I mash them. I get a potato masher or a fork and mash the potatoes down and I make a batter similar to a pancake batter. I would take self-rising flour, add some black pepper to it, add cold water to it, stir it until it's the consistency of pancake batter. And then I would take those potatoes and join them up and make a patty, put it in, dunk it in the um, mixture, the flour mixture, put it in a skillet and cook it. And now we have a potato pancake. Not, not very different than the, the Jewish one. What's it called? Uh, Latke. Yes. Mm -hmm. The taste isn't very different from that. Uh, what kind of yeast bread did you make? Or did you make? Um, just regular white bread. Um, we didn't have uh, the wheat flours and those kinds of things during that time. Flour was just white flour. And like so- Like white lily? Um, yes, yes, like white lily and Martha White was one mm -hmm. of the brands that we used. Um, my grandmother made the best bread that I've ever eaten in my life. And I have spent my life trying to duplicate that. Every restaurant I go into, I'm interested in what the bread looks like. And I have not yet found one that comes close. My grandmother's bread, you could, the days that she made bread, as we would 
be coming home on the school bus. We'd round the corner and uh, the corner was maybe oh, a quarter of a mile to half a mile from my grandmother's house. And I swear I could smell that yeast just floating through the air as we approached the house. And when we got to my house, we lived next door to my grandmother. When we got to our house, we'd hop off the bus. I never went in my doors. I went tearing across the yard to my grandmother's house and I'd get some of that wonderful bread. I could make a meal from her bread and butter. That's all I needed. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. Are there any cakes that are special to your family? Uh, yes, there is. Um, there is one cake that is special to me. There were several special to our family. There was a cake that my mother made that uh, she, she was requested to make often. And it was a white cake that she used six egg whites, I believe it was, to make no egg yolks, six egg whites. And uh, this was a beautiful white cake with a deep dark chocolate frosting. And this chocolate frosting was made from Hershey's cocoa. And she would mix that with sugar and milk and and boil it down and cook it down until it was just almost perfect. And then she would whip up, I believe it was an egg white and pour it in there. And there was something about that that made it spread nicely over the cake. So it would be um, a white cake with uh, a dark chocolate frosting. She also made a wonderful caramel cake it would be a yellow cake um, and uh, the caramel icing again, she made that uh, from scratch and it would be uh, a combination of eggs, sugar, milk and butter, I believe it was. And she would cook that down low and that's the one I know she had the, uh, the beaten egg white at the end and just made the icing flow smoothly over the cake. My specialty is German chocolate cake. I love pecans, I love coconut, and I love them together. (laughs) And so I discovered as a young girl, I discovered German chocolate cake somewhere or other. And I decided, oh, I, I have to learn how to make that. So by the time I was 12 years old, from the time I was 12 through college until I left home, I made my Christmas money making German chocolate cakes. I was so good at it that my family and friends would order them each, you know, Christmas, and I would be there making, you know, cake after cake after cake and selling them. And so uh, it is still my favorite to make. I uh, made one just uh, Thanksgiving. And uh, for my mother, when I go home, she oftentimes requests that I make her a German chocolate cake. And we have it just about every major celebration that we have with family. Spectacular. Spectacular. Are there any other questions? I I have one final question. Uh, I think you touched on this in your talk tonight, and I know you touched uh, on this in your talk in Birmingham. Uh, can you like summarize or say something about uh, the contributions that uh, the, the contribution that Amer- African-American women have made to America's table, what, what their significance is? Our significance is we fed everybody. We fed everybody, whether you wanted us to or not, we just did. You know, when I think about uh, slavery, 
you know, the slave master's wife wasn't often the one doing the cooking. It was, you know, one of the gals from the house, you know, usually they could figure out who, who the best cooks were. And uh, they were the ones who were in those homes feeding uh, the children and feeding the family. And uh, the same thing with us. I mean, we have just Oh my gosh, I remember when I was a little girl, there was, uh, when my mother moved out and uh, she uh, had me and my sister and my uh, brother, my brother Bobby at the time, we lived in a duplex when we first moved from the country into town. And uh, in the other side of the duplex was a little girl who never knew where her next meal was coming from. And so we would, you know, come home from school at the end of the day and, 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 you know, race to the kitchen. And there was always more food than we knew what to do with. I've never known a hungry day in my life. Thank God. And thank my parents and my grandparents for their legacy. But uh, we were able to eat whatever we wanted to. And this little girl, she didn't do much talking. Uh, she'd just show up and you'd just know she was hungry. And so my mother would bring her in and feed her. And, uh, and every day she, she showed up, she came back. And so uh, I'm also uh, remembering that, uh, reminded of when I was in college, I went to, my did my undergrad at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. It uh, is a little college owned and operated by the Southern Baptist Convention. At the time, it was ranked number three in the state educationally. It was a wonderful little place. And it was primarily white. It was, uh, I think we were the uh, people of color on campus uh, were about 11%. But um, that never bothered me because I integrated a school when I was, you know, nine years old. So I don't worry about those kinds of things. I can make my way anywhere I go. And so um, my brother and I started what uh, eventually became the first Black student union on campus. We had a choir and um, we did some other things. And the piano player for our choir was a white boy. And uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, he's a, a dentist there now. And um, so we would come home. My, the college was eight miles from our house and I had my own car. My brother was there and he had his own car. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to load the car up with our friends, um, most of whom were white, and take them home with us for dinner. Because you know how it is with college food, you get tired of the same old, you know, mashed potatoes with not enough milk and butter in them. So uh, we knew where we could get a wonderful plate of food. So I'd pull into the driveway, my brother would be there already, my mother would go back to the kitchen and cook again. And so it wasn't uncommon for her to feed as many as, oh, at least a dozen college students when my brother and I would show up. So I remember one night, Jimmy C., uh, our piano player, was sitting at my mother's table. And he said to her, Miss Grayson, can I ask you a question? And she said, yes, you may. He said, some of us, our grandparents and great-grandparents were probably slave owners. And um, you allow us to come home, to come here to your house and sit at your table and eat your food and, 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 I was just wondering why, 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 how can you do that? Why would you do that? And she, I'll never forget her answer. She looked at him and she said, son, 
She said, I have seven children and I don't know where they're gonna turn up on the earth and in the world. She says, and when they leave my house, I want to know that somebody will feed them if they're somewhere hungry. She says, so I feed you today so that somebody can feed my child tomorrow if they need it. Wow. And I have one last question. It's not a question, it's a request. You sang a song at the conference um, that was sung at your table, uh, your grandmother's table. Uh, I think it was, was it down by the riverside? Is that what you It was, saying? yes, could it you, was. Could you give us a closing encore? I, I, I sure can. <laughs> I'm gonna lay down my burdens down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Gonna lay down my burdens down by the riverside to study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more. Well, amen and thank you so much. Have a wonderful life and evening. Not thank necessarily you. in that order. Take care. <laughs> Can I thank ask you, you so another much. question? Here? Absolutely. I'll yeah. still take Somebody some more wanted questions. to know what was stated behind you on the plaque behind you. On the plaque behind me, it says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Excellent. That's a good way to end. <laughs> and I'll send you anybody who made comments on the you know chat. I will be sending you a copy. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you all and I hope to see you again, even if it's here. Wonderful. <laughs> and it worked well, didn't it? Yes, I think so. <laughs> you're, you're no longer a Zoom virgin. Congratulations. Right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you all for letting me uh, um, test, you, test it out on you. <laughs> it worked beautifully. Thank you again. Thank you now. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.